I invite you to pray with me as we begin. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the ground, causing it to bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish that which I have purposed and succeed in everything that I have designed. That's our confidence. We trust the promise that your word never returns empty. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. One question that I'm not asking in this message is, what are the natural things that a preacher can do to increase the natural knowledge and the natural feeling of his people? I have no interest in that question whatsoever. What I mean by natural, the natural things that a pastor can do, the natural alterations of the mind and the heart that can happen through preaching. What I mean by natural is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What are they? The natural person does not accept them, cannot understand them. They are the content of preaching. Paul had just been referring to what he had imparted through preaching. The glories of Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and all that God is for us in Him. For example, he had just said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So among the things of the Spirit of God are the word of the cross. Or he had just said in chapter 1, verse 21, since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So knowing God is part of the things of the Spirit of God that the natural person cannot understand. Or he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So among the things of the Spirit of God that the natural mind cannot grasp are Jesus Christ. And he said, I imparted this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So this is what the natural person cannot grasp. It is spiritually discerned. So the chief 
and ultimate aim of preaching, namely, that people would see and savor and show the glories of Christ and all that God is for us in him is an aim that cannot be accomplished by any natural person. It cannot happen in a preacher or a hearer who is what Paul calls a natural person. Can't happen. So I'm not asking what are the natural things that a preacher can do to increase natural knowledge and natural feeling. Preaching is not a subspecies of natural rhetoric. It's not a means of using language to persuade the natural mind to act differently. Rhetoric, natural oratory, can move the natural mind in stunning ways. <laughs> Whole movements of the world can be carried by natural rhetoric. Think Winston Churchill. Think John Kennedy. Stunning things can happen through natural speech, natural rhetoric and rhetorical skill. This natural effect on the mind is not a taste for spiritual beauty. It's not a taste of the beauty and glory and worth of God. Natural oratory does not impart the miracle of seeing and savoring and showing the glory of Christ. And therefore, Christian preaching has no interest in merely natural rhetoric. Preaching aims to bring about spiritual sight of the glories of God in Christ. It aims to awaken and sustain a spiritual taste that God is supremely beautiful and satisfying. Rhetorical successes that fall short of that are fatal, especially in the ministry, in the church. What makes preaching unique is that it is a miracle aiming to be the agent of miracles in the people. And the main miracle it aims to experience in the preacher and bring about in the people is the miracle of spiritual sight, understanding, grasping truth, and spiritual savoring, cherishing, delighting, treasuring, and spiritual showing a church radically transformed and a light to the world. Now, a word of clarification about the word spiritual. Uh, today, that word, as Paul used it, would, would not be understood. When he uses it in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the, 
The things of God are spiritually discerned. Pneumaticos anacrinitae. He does not mean that something spiritual is religious or mystical or otherworldly. That's the way most people think about spiritual. Oh, if it's religious and it's um, mystical and it's otherworldly, it's spiritual. Well, no, it's not. Instead, spiritual for Paul meant originating by the Holy Spirit and having the quality of the Holy Spirit, formed by the character of the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural, wrought, shaped by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can see this in Romans 8, 6 to 9. I'm just clarifying the term right now. This is kind of a parenthesis, but an important one. In, in Romans 8, 6 to 9, the natural person of 1 Corinthians 2.14 is described as the mind of the flesh, as opposed to the mind of the spirit, the mind of the flesh. And the problem with the mind of the flesh is not that it is irreligious, or that it fails to be mystical, or that it fails to be otherworldly. In fact, the mind of the flesh may be intensely religious. The mind of the flesh may be very mystical, very otherworldly. The problem with the mind of the flesh is that it is hardened against the beauty of God, the worth of God, the authority of God. It's hard against God. It's unable to welcome and love and delight in and enjoy God. Here's what it says. The mind of the flesh is death. But the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God, even in worship. The Pharisees were hostile to God, and they worshiped Him all the time. They were hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So notice, the opposite of the mind of the flesh is not a vague spirituality. It's called the mind of the Spirit, having the mind of the Spirit. And it's explained in verse 9, you, namely you who have the mind of the Spirit, you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God is in you. So the opposite of the natural person, the opposite of the natural person is not a religious person or a mystical person or an otherworldly person. The opposite of the natural person is a person indwelt by the Spirit, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, who is active such that they are experiencing discernment by the Spirit, seeing Him for who He is, savoring Him for who He is, showing Him for who He is, because the Spirit is alive, active, dominant, working in their lives. End of clarification on the word 
spiritual. Spiritual means something that is originating from the Holy Spirit, shaped by the Holy Spirit, having the character of the Spirit. Now back to the distinction between rhetoric and and preaching. Rhetoric relies on natural powers, mental powers, volitional powers, emotional powers, dramatic powers, to create natural, mental, volitional, emotional effects in people. And they can be stunning and very religious. That is not Christian preaching. What makes Christian preaching unique is that it is a miracle in the preacher aiming to be the agent of miracles in the people. And the main miracle that is being aimed at to be experienced in the preacher and to be brought about in the people is the miracle of spiritual sight and savoring and showing of the glory of God in Christ, in Scripture. Therefore, the chief and ultimate aim of preaching is not possible apart from the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. Period. There is no Christian preaching apart from the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. Without his supernatural work, neither preacher nor people can see God for who he is. They cannot savor, love, delight in, treasure, honor, glorify, enjoy God for who he is. They cannot show him everything will be fake. The natural mind can only see things as foolish that are things of God. They cannot see it as precious, beautiful, satisfying, worth everything, worth dying for, living for. They can't see it that way. The natural mind cannot treasure God above all things. But when the Spirit does his miracle work through preaching, when he does his miracle work through preaching, he raises the spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. He takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. He goes beyond what flesh and blood can do. Peter, Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. My Father in heaven did that, Matthew 16. He shines, five, four, I've lost track. He shines out from the gospel to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to Corinthians 4. He enlightens the eyes of the heart, Ephesians 1. And he unveils the face to see the beauty and worth of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, 
verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. In other words, without the sovereign, life-giving, blindness-removing, heart-illumining, glory-revealing work of God's Spirit, preaching cannot achieve its aims. Indeed, it cannot exist. So, preaching is a miracle in the preacher seeking to be the agent of miracles in the people. Preaching is spiritual worship seeking spiritual worshipers. Preaching is spiritual seeing, seeking to awaken spiritual seeing. Preaching is treasuring, seeking to awaken spiritual treasuring. So, to say it again, I am not asking the question, what are the natural things that a preacher can do to increase the natural knowledge and natural feeling? Here's what I'm asking. And uh, Sam, I'm, I'm rivaling you on the length of my introduction. Maybe you won't get as far as you did. But we'll. I am asking, how can a preacher become the means by which the Holy Spirit works the miracle of worship in the hearts of the people? How do you... Now, at this moment, become the means of the Holy Spirit working miracles of worship, seeing, savoring, profound life-changing transformation of your whole being. How do I preach so that it is not I, but the Spirit preaching through me? You can hear in that way of asking the question, the same question Paul asked for the whole of human life, which is why those of you who are not and do not intend to be preachers should listen to the sermon right now, because how we answer the question, how do you preach so that you are not preaching but he is preaching, is the same as how do you change a diaper so that he is changing the diaper to the glory of God, not you. And all of life is worship. That is the way life is to be lived. Listen to Paul's description of the Christian life and hear preaching as an aspect of life. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, <laughs> really, but Christ who lives in me, but the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The whole of everything is in that verse. How do you not live 
so that he can live, and yet live so that he is living. We'll come back. That's what this message is intended to answer. Or, 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not I, but the grace that was with me. Really? I'm not preaching. I'm not preaching. But I'm preaching. Maybe. Or 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. One more. Philippians 2, 12 Work out your salvation up there in the pulpit with fear and trembling. For God is the one who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, in each of those four texts, Galatians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 3, Philippians 2, in each of those texts, I live. And that includes preaching. In such a way that it is, in some crucial sense, not I preaching, but God preaching, God living. So I'm asking, how does a preacher go about this? How, how does a preacher become the means, the instrument? by which the Holy Spirit works the miracle of seeing and savoring and showing the glory of Christ in the hearts of the people? That's my question. I'm done with the introduction, just posing the question. My answer to that question for the last 35 years or so has been to, before preaching, or other acts where I do not want to act, but God act, to mentally and spiritually walk through the acronym APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. And what I want to do in the rest of this message is spend almost all of my time on the middle T, A-P-T-A-T, and how it practically works during the moments just before preaching and then during preaching. I'm trying to be as absolutely practical as I can be because I do not like platitudes of others preach by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, bear the fruits of the Spirit. What? Help me! What are you talking about? Words, words, words. 
Buy? Buy? What does buy mean? Right now. Sit by the Spirit. <laughs> Listen by the Spirit. You got, a, you got your handle on that? That's not simple. It won't work just to use words. You should know how to sit by the Spirit. How to get on a plane by the Spirit. Or preach by the Spirit. A-P-T-A-T. A, admit. P, pray. T, trust. A, act. T, thank. I'll say one more time if this is new to you. My guess is it's not new to many of you. This is, this is how I try to obey the command to, to not be so that he can be. That's, admit, A, P, pray, T, trust, A, act, T, think. Let me say a word about the first A and P, and I'm going to spend almost all of our time on T, and I'll tell you why. I'm trying to answer the question, how do I preach so as to become the agent of supernatural miracles in the people, which only God can do? What do I do so that God does in and through me and in them? It's now one or two minutes before I preach. I'm going to reenact. This is now really Jason, but I'm putting myself back five years, and then for 33 years before that, and I'm sitting on the front pew. It's two minutes before I preach. The text is being read by one of the apprentices or the, an elder or staff person. Now, this is, the, this is not the first moment of Sunday morning when I have used Aptat. It's just the most urgent because it's two minutes before I will herald the Word of God. I walk through Aptat in my mind. A, admit. I'm sitting there quietly. Uh, text is being read. Um, or I might have done it during the song. And I say, Father, I admit I admit I am utterly dependent on you right now. Without your providence, I would have no life or breath or capacity to think or capacity to feel or any, any muscles in my arms or legs or mind. I would not be apart from your providence. Without your supernatural help, as I preach, no one in this room will be converted Without your supernatural help, no one will be raised from the dead. No one will have the heart of a stone taken out, heart of flesh put in. No one will discern the true meaning of this text. None, not a person in this room, will see it apart from a supernatural enablement. No one will see spiritual beauty. No one will savor your infinite worth. No one will be transformed into your likeness. I admit this freely, gladly, willingly. I embrace the words of Jesus without me. You, John Piper, can do nothing. Now, that's way too long to do it in the time during the text. 
I'm just illustrating the kinds of things that I say. When I say admit, those are the kinds of admissions. I may mention just one or two of those. I just, I admit, Father, that right now, zero self-reliance. If, if you are not speaking, I go out of existence. And if your Holy Spirit doesn't come, nothing fruitful, nothing eternal, nothing spiritual happens in this room in the next 45 minutes. I admit that and am happy to have it so. So that's A. P, pray. I pray for the help I need. I might just say, help me. It may be all that comes out of my heart or my lips. Help me. But usually there's some particular burden, some special help that I need some challenge, weakness. So I ask for specific help. For example, I might say, Father, grant me the miracle of self-forgetfulness, please. I don't want to be thinking about me while I preach. It's utterly hopeless if, if I'm constantly thinking about myself, which I am right now because I'm talking about this. It's very awkward. I pray for the gift of self-forgetfulness and and humility. Humility is a gift. You can't make yourself humble. You can't work up humility. It's contradictory. It's a gift. Grant me clarity of mind and expression. Grant me freedom from my manuscript. And don't let me get lost or confused, please. Bring to my mind any fresh word. Sometimes I'll use the word prophecy for this. I'll pray for the gift of prophecy. You know, how you understand that that gift that we've been talking about a little bit will depend on whether you feel free to talk like that. If you don't like that language, use another language. But when I say, give me the gift of prophecy while I'm preaching, I just mean right now as I look at you, God may bring to my mind something that's not in the manuscript that may be stunningly useful to you. Absolutely amazingly converting or empowering or liberating or delivering at that moment. So I just, I'll say, I want you to feel free, butt in. 22 pages here. I think they're from you. Holy Spirit's no less active whenever I prepared this than he is today. Not any less active in hours of preparation, which is why I think manuscripts are not carnal. Thank goodness, because I'm just so forgetful. Like, I don't know what to say next. Let me find it here. I'm I'm talking about what I ask him for in the P moment of my urgency. Grant joy in the truth that I speak. Give me the affections that correspond to the gravity or the gladness of what I'm saying in the text. Grant me to feel love for these people. Grant me compassion for lost people that are out there. Grant me compassion for the weak. Make me real, oh God. Now, those are samplings of what I mean by P. I'm, I'm asking that God do what needs to be done because I've just admitted I can't make what I want to happen happen. So I'm asking for whatever I want to happen to happen. And the, and the sermon will shape the content of those prayers. Like, what are you hoping will happen this morning? So that's P. Now, T. 
This is the rest of the message almost. It's all important, the T. Admit, pray, trust. You are trusting God here. I call it all important because the Apostle Paul did not promise the empowering supply of the Spirit to admitting or praying. He promised it to trusting. And here's my probably most important text on how to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and if, you, if you don't have this circled in your Bible, open your Bible or get out your phone and choose a nice big purple highlighter and mark it. Galatians 3, 2 through 5. All important text for me has been ever since seminary. Let me ask you only this, you Galatians, you, you piper. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with trust, faith? You know the answer to that. It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't give the answer. He expects you to answer it. And the answer is plain, not by works of the law, by, but by hearing something with trust. He, he goes on, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, don't do that. Don't begin that way and then turn the Christian life into flesh. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If it is in vain, and then here the key verse. Does he who supplies, present ongoing tense, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works dunamis among you, now, there he's not the Holy Spirit, Sam, because the Spirit is doing it. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works, the Spirit works dunamis, miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with trust? Answer, the supply of the Spirit flows by trust. Now, now I've got some practical help with the word by, by the Spirit. Love your wife by the Spirit. Parent your kids by the Spirit. Change the diaper by the Spirit. Get on the plane by the Spirit. It's like Galatians 2. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So, evidently then, the mystery key to turn this crucified person into a living person in such a way that he's not a living person, but Christ is the living person, is faith. This is so close to the center. If we could get this, if we could get this moment and what this T 
is we might, we might preach in the power of the Spirit more consistently. So, just to review, verses 2 through 5, he expects us to know the answer to these two rhetorical questions. We received, past tense, the Spirit not by works of the law, but by hearing something and trusting that something. Secondly, verse 5, we go on being supplied by the Spirit so that miracles happen in our lives, like seeing and savoring and showing the glory of Christ. Miracles are happening by not works of the law, but hearing something with trust. Oh my, that's an answer. And we just need to figure this out. Like, I think I can understand that. So let's keep the two things together, hearing and faith, right? Hearing with faith, hearing with faith, Faith faith-filled hearing. Hearing what? (laughs) Right? You can't just talk about hearing, like, oh, get a hearing aid, I'll be more trusting. Hearing what? Well... In the immediate context of Galatians, surely the heart of the answer to that question is the gospel. All that Galatians presented by way of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. Hear hear the gospel. Hear Christ crucified and risen for the sake of your life. But we know, and we know it from Galatians, we know it from Romans, we know it from the whole Bible, that the blood-bought benefits of the gospel, the blood-bought benefits of Christ's sacrifice include all the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. (laughs) The whole Bible, every time God says, I'll do something good for you or for those rascal Israelites, it's yours. It's yours because of the blood of Jesus. Big hermeneutical center that turns the whole Bible into a gift for Sunday morning before you preach. Now, let's bring this into relationship to preaching from Galatians 3.5 and paraphrase it like this. Does he who supplies to you the Spirit as you preach and works miracles among your people through your preaching, does he do that by works of the law, natural rhetoric, perhaps, or does he do it by hearing some precious blood-bought promise with faith in that moment? Faith in the precious, blood-bought, secured, guaranteed promise from God Almighty to you, the preacher, in that moment. Can you believe that particular promise? The Spirit is supplied to the preacher through hearing with 
trust, hearing, I'm arguing, the gospel slash and all that the gospel secured for you, namely every promise in the Bible. Now, at this point, I think many preachers um, settle for something less than the best, to be gentle. Many of you have never heard the, the acronym APTAT. And I do not mean to imply that you can't have lived in this reality without having heard my little mnemonic device. However, there are many, I think, who have, in the moment of crisis, just before preaching, say, defaulted to vague spiritual generalities about God. He's good. He's gracious. He's powerful. And praise God for true generalities. I just believe from 40 years of struggle, there's more for you. There's more for you, and that's what I'm trying to give. There's more for you to enjoy at that moment of power if you would shift from vague generalities to specific promises, grasp them and trust them. I'll try to illustrate. I have formed over the years three habits, and I just want to unpack them. This is three ways that T, the middle T, trust, and it's becoming a, a channel for power, channel for the Holy Spirit. Does he who supplies the Spirit do so by works of the law or by trusting? Does he do it by trusting? Three ways that that works on Sunday, Saturday, if you preach on Saturday, or any time you preach, or any time you change a diaper for that matter, but don't want to get too distracted here. First habit. In the prayer room downstairs, that sanctuary was built in 1991. I stopped being the main preacher there uh, in uh, five years ago, whenever that was, 13. Uh, so from 91 to 2013, I that 22 years, um, that's where the, my preaching happened. Ten years before that, 12 years before that, it was the old sanctuary that we tore down. There's a prayer room in the basement. We met there 30 minutes to pray before every service that I ever preached. There may have been a few times where we skipped for some reason. But there we met. The most common verse that emerged in the prayer gathering as they tried to cover me and help me be ready to go up and do this work was 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks... Let him speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, and this is the one, it's not the speaking one that we focused on because the second one grabbed, grabbed the essence of it. Whoever serves, so Pastor John is about to serve us with the word. Whoever serves, let him serve in the strength that God supplies. And there's the question, how do you do that? How do you do that? Let him serve. It's, it's, it's telling me to do something. It's telling us to do something. So God is doing that. L let the one who serves serve 
by the strength that God supplies in order that God in everything may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. (laughs) What a great text. That text makes clear that I will be preaching. Let him who serves. Let him who speaks. I'm going to be preaching. And it makes clear that when I'm preaching, I better not be preaching in my strength, but in the strength of God. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that God may be glorified, because the giver of the strength gets the glory. The great struggle of preaching is how to do that, how to disappear. The giver of the strength gets the glory for the message. <clears throat> that text, 1 Peter 4.11, has been the launching pad of hundreds of sermons in that sanctuary. I'm sure it still is. It sets the stage one half hour early for my mindset, hour, and maybe five or 20 people in the room at at that time, our mindset. We will now trust in the promise of God and not in ourselves. And when that trust happens, that God is going to show his strength in and through the preacher and the people, the Holy Spirit is on the move. When trust happens in that prayer room, God is on the move. Habit number two. So that's a half hour early habit. Habit number two. Second practice is to keep a precious store of all-purpose promises. General, all-purpose promises in my memory ready to be trusted at any moment when nothing more specific is given to my mind by God. These are my default treasure. They are of such a breadth that they are always relevant in every preaching situation, no matter what. For example, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. Is there a more precious sentence before preaching than, Sam, I'll help you. Spoken by the creator of the universe, Jason, I will help you. I will help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41.10, the most common Trusted promise in my life. No eye has seen a God beside you who works for those who wait for him. Isaiah 64, 4. I work for people who wait for me. Would you just pause right there in the 10 seconds before you go into this pulpit? Acknowledge me, wait for me, look 
to me. I work for people like that. I'll tell you, that's empowering. When God Almighty says that to you, I work, I work for you. That's scary. Like, no, I thought I was your servant. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Can that be more expansive? No. <laughs> My God will supply every need. You don't have a need he won't supply in that moment. If you trust him, and your need may be to fail and forget your notes and lose your voice and only be able to think about what's happening at home. That may be your need. Be careful how you apply the promises of God as though he's only a rah-rah promise fulfiller. He meets every need of his children who trust him. Number four, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, including this moment in preaching. There will be a sufficiency. Those are my four default treasure promises. They're always relevant. They're always valid. They're always helpful. And I use them, especially number one, because it's just the whir of the gears in my mind when my mind is not latched on to anything else. I will help you. I will help you. I will help you. And the issue is, do you trust me? Are you walking into this situation doubting me? You're like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro, double-minded. Maybe you won't, maybe you will. Holy Spirit's not going to flow there. He flows through hearing with faith. That's habit number two. Make sure that your mind has a battery of promises that you can default to at any moment and trust that God will help you. Here's the third habit. The third habit, and this is where I'm pleading with you to consider doing things you may have never done before in specificity. The third habit is to ransack the Scripture for special God-given promises early Sunday morning Saturday, sometime hours before the sermon, ransack the scriptures for special God-given promises early Sunday morning during my private time of prayer and meditation. Seeking a special gift of promise. What, what will you assure me of today? In other words, as I walk through my usual Bible reading, I have a Bible reading plan. I think without a plan, you just coast and you get all confused and messed up and dawdle and procrastinate. You don't have a plan in reading your Bible, you're not going to read it with any 
extensiveness. So I have a plan, and I, I have an appointed text for every morning. I trust that providence, and I'm in it, and I'm just looking for something, for help that day. Now, I'll give you an example. This is the sort of thing that I, I mean. Suppose that Noelle and I, and she's right there, we've been married 49 years, and she's been with me in the ministry um, all the way. I was a seminary student when we married. 42 of those 49 years, we had children in the home. That's a lot of parenting. So the matrix of my life, my, the matrix of my preaching has been marriage and parenting for, for almost all my life, all the ministry. That's very difficult. Paul knew what he was saying when he said, don't marry <laughs> if you want trouble-free preaching. Okay? Don't, because there, there are going to be issues with your kids. There's going to be issues at home that you wouldn't have if you stayed single. For example, so suppose that Noel and I had that week, before I'm going to preach now, a serious conflict. And in the past few days, uh, I feel guilty about it and discouraged. And I have taken some steps to try to make it right. And, and it's as right as it can be, you know. There's nothing simple in the world after 40 years in marriage. Nothing simple. Because you've been through the same conflicts 100 times. And to make it right is, you make it right as you can make it right. Because you're the same people you've always been and it's probably going to happen again. <laughs> so you take whatever steps you can to make it right. And you feel defeated. I feel defeated in my sinful attitudes. And this looms huge as an obstacle to preaching with freedom and joy. That's why I'm saying a matrix for preaching that is marriage and, and child rearing, that's a huge obstacle to Sunday morning's joy and freedom. How will I be able to preach? How will I be able to count on the Lord's help when I feel like such a failure at home. And as I cry out to the Lord, say it's Friday morning maybe, just getting ready to prepare, I cry out to the Lord, the Lord directs my attention to Psalm 25. Just illustrate it. It's just be a hundred places, but Psalm 25, and I read this, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And the Lord takes this as he does, as he has hundreds of times and preaches it to me and reminds me, I guide sinners in the way. I'll read it to you again. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. You can't preach without that promise. You can't. 
How are you going to prepare? I'm going to be in exegesis all day Friday, trying to think of applications to marriage for this sermon. You can't do that unless you're a total fake or that promise is true. (laughs) He instructs sinners in the way of preaching. And so he has now specified what I need to trust. It's not just Isaiah 41.10, I'll help you. That helps. But oh, oh, how sweet the specificity of promises to our situations. It's this specificity to my situation that has proved more powerful than all the generalities about grace that are in my head, glorious as they are, indispensable as those generalities are. Now, maybe this is a weakness of John Piper. Maybe just God is gracious because Christ died for me should be all that I need to preach in the power. It's not. I might be wrong in this. I just know what's real for me. And I think it's biblical because the Bible abounds with so many hundreds of utterly specific promises for amazingly diverse and difficult situations that are all purchased for me by the blood of Jesus. And it seems to me that leaving all those specific promises lying in the drawer and just constantly saying, you're nice, you're gracious, you're good, I'll trust you, that's wonderful. The drawers are full of glorious specificities for your situation and for this moment in preaching, and he wants to be trusted for all those promises. Vagueness and generalities weaken us, I think. If it doesn't, praise God if it doesn't for you. But it does for me. I have to have God saying something specific to me if I am going to, in the moment, feel like God and I have got a transaction here. He has spoken. I am trusting. This is going to be amazing. I just, I can't do that with generalities. So this is, this is habit number three of ransacking the Bible in search of what I specifically in this moment need from him. A few more examples. Suppose I am very anxious about preaching clearly or powerfully. I'm anxious, and he directs me to Matthew 10. Don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, what you are to say will be given you in that hour. Or suppose I'm just discouraged at the thought that very little comes from my ministry, my preaching. Maybe he gives me this. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return there, but water the ground, causing it to bring forth and sprout, giving bread to the eater and seed to the sower, so will my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to be empty. It will accomplish everything I purpose and succeed in that for which I design. I memorized that, re-memorized that, because that was one of the promises I got this morning. And I'm banking on it. 
I'm banking that Galatians 3, 5 is not coming back empty in your life. Or suppose you're attacked by thoughts that what I have to say is just it's so little account and, and people are going to discount it and they always, they don't they ever seem to get excited about it. And then he gives me this. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. And Piper, don't you ever, ever, ever forget that or treat these things as though they were not gold, as though they were not a million times more valuable than what those people out there put no stock in what you say think are valuable. What they think are valuable cannot be compared to this gold and this honey. Do you trust me? Do you believe this? Or suppose I'm in a situation, I've traveled somewhere, and I'm afraid for my life. And he gives me, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Or suppose you're sick. And this has happened to me every November almost, it seems like. Your nose is running. There's a tickle in your throat. You're afraid you're going to cough your way through a whole sermon. And this is going to be so distracting, and nobody's going to get help. And he gives you, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is going to be made perfect in your weakness, your thorn, whatever. One more illustration. Suppose I made the mistake of reading my email just before I came over. (laughs) This morning, I had seven new emails. I saw three of them from people that I'm dealing with crisis situations. I did not read them. But suppose you did. Suppose you did. And there is a stinging criticism for something you said out of conviction and are not sorry for it. And the Lord directs you to this. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So here I'm sitting on the front pew now. Those are my three habits. The praying for half an hour over Philippians 4.11. The uh, storehouse of four general all-purpose treasure promises in case nothing more specific comes to my mind. And the ransacking of the scripture looking for something really specific and personal for this moment in my life, in this need, in this sermon. Suppose now I'm sitting there And I have admitted, A, that I'm utterly helpless without God and utterly fruitless without the Spirit. P, I have prayed for help in the multiplicity of ways that are on my heart at that moment. And now I am trusting a specific promise. And the real test is coming in the next 10 seconds. 
Did he who supplies the Spirit to you, which I want to happen in the next 10 seconds and then for 45 minutes, does he who supplies the Spirit to you do so by works of the law or by hearing with trust? So right there on the front pew or back there 50 minutes ago or whatever it was, um, I recite the promise, only I do it, even if the biblical wording is not an I, thou kind of situation, I turn it into that so that I hear God in my heart speaking. I say to him, I trust you, or I believe, help my unbelief. I consciously turn my mind away from everything that I can to that word and that promise because I personally have a very special affection for the very word of God spoken to me personally by God himself in these moments. I need to hear, hear in my heart, like see with the eyes of my heart. Paul says there's a seeing with the heart and there's a hearing with the heart and clearly the seeing with the heart is not Light and the hearing with the heart is not sound. It is spiritual. And you hear him, and what he says is this, or some version of it. I will help you. This is walking to the pulpit. Or while the singing, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I'll give you what you need. I will protect you from the evil one. I will make your words effective. I love you, John Piper. I have called you. You are mine. I have helped you a hundred times. Would you doubt me? Now go. Be strong. Be of good courage. I'm with you. I'm with your mouth. I say that. I say that in my head. I say those words. Knowing they're God's words because of promises in this book bought by Jesus. It's a glorious way. I don't know any other way to enter the pulpit and hope to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Then hearing with faith. Now the A is here. A-P-T-A. Act. And here's the paradox. Look at that. I'm moving my arms. That's action. Words coming out of my mouth. Action. You can't. The Holy Spirit does not remove or replace the preacher. That would be nice. He doesn't. Rather, work out your salvation, for God is the one who is at work in you to will and to work. You work, Piper. Get up there and work. Get up there and work, for God is bringing about the working. Get up there and work. He creates the miracle of spirit-sustained speech. You act it. He creates it. You act it. 
there's the paradox of the Christian life and the paradox of preaching. Rarely while preaching do I return to the promise. I'm just too involved. Spurgeon probably could. I mean, I read one time that he could pray for eight people at one time while he was preaching. And at one point, I was able to pray for one person while I was preaching. I mean, I mean, I got to the point where I could, as I was looking out, my people, I knew this situation, that situation, and, 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 and I realized, oh, that's possible. For Piper, it's one. Like, he, he, while, while the, the train of thought is still going, I, I see you. And I know what you're thinking about your husband and, and what you need right now. And I just kind of, a, a three-second whispered prayer that this sermon would help that person. So I get that. But my brain is so, it's not there. I am just all into this. And I can't say, now what was that promise that I was trusting, you know, 30 minutes ago? I don't do that. Every now and then, the Lord will bring it to my mind. I don't stop on it because I'd get lost if I did. But I, I just suddenly remember it. Think, oh, yes, that's good. That took about half a second for that to happen. Or more often, I, something will happen distracting. Something in the congregation, I, I get, you know, my, page, my pages are out of whack or something like this. And I think, oh, no, where am I? And, and the Lord was, it's all right. It's under control. I can do this. We're, we, we, are, we are able to do this. But in general, I'm just saying trusting him uh, may mean that promise drops into the background of your mind and you're all into your text and loving your people. So, does he, I'm closing, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and as you preach and works miracles among you, in the people, through your preaching. Does he do that by works of the law or by calling to mind promises, blood-bought, and believing them? When that happens, when faith happens, you, you may feel something unusual in the sacred anointing. And here I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not sure about all, all that you said about Lloyd-Jones there about you know, soaring instead of climbing uphill, it's downhill. Hmm. Um, who am I to question Martin Lloyd Jones? <laughs> um, you are not promised goosebumps when the Holy Spirit is being supplied in your preaching, only that the Spirit will be supplied and work His wonders. And sometimes you can see evidences of his working as you preach or after you preach. Usually it is better not to presume that what you are seeing is spiritual. There are many unspiritual responses to anointed preaching which look significant but are not. Believe me, I know People have sat under my ministry for decades, dead. Or seemingly spiritual on a Sunday and dead the next. And there are miracles you cannot see. 
It is better to trust God. It is better to trust God is at work. And then make yourself available after the service to discern as you pray with people, what's he doing? And then I'm done. We sing while we're singing. Final T, thank, admit, pray, trust, act, thank. And I walk down and I wait. Song is over. I dismiss the people with the benediction. I stand down front. And during those few minutes, I'm saying, thank you. Thank you. Whatever you did, thank you. Thank you that I I didn't drop over. Thank you that I didn't totally lose my place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then it's all over. An hour later, not praying for people anymore. And I'm by myself on the 11th Avenue Bridge, my bridge of revelation and gratitude. Crossed it. 15,000 times in the last 38 years. And on that bridge, I'm saying, thank you. Thank you. What a privilege to be the instrument of the Holy Spirit in the miracle of seeing and savoring and showing the glory of Christ. Breathe on it, Lord all week. Breathe on it. And in this room right now, Lord, do it for these pastors. Do that. Teach them how to preach in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, there is help in your word for the meaning of walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And you make the connection with faith in Galatians 2.20 and Galatians 3.5, so clear. So now grant the gift of trust and grant the disciplines to ransack the Bible until we have enough promises in our treasure chest that we will never be adrift without some concrete, specific, blood-bought, loving word from you that you mean to make your word fruitful. I pray this in Jesus' name.